Welcome to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, the first podcast to focus on the political side of pharmacy. Here's your host, Eric Geyer. Welcome, Political Pharmacist Podcast listeners. I'm your host, Eric Geyer, and with me today I have Dr. Casey Vilhauer. She's a graduate from the University of Iowa, so go Hawkeyes, CEO of VaxiTaxi, and also the winner of the Next Generation Pharmacist Award, Entrepreneur Category, and Iowa Pharmacists Association 2021 Excellence Innovation winner. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Vilhauer. Thank you. It's so nice to talk to you again. <laughs> yeah. Hey, we've been kind of going back and forth on this for a little while here because you've been, obviously been busy with a lot of what you're doing here. Can you explain what VaxiTaxi does? You bet. The best way I can describe it is we are Uber Eats. So Vaxi Taxi has our pharmacist and they are the delivery drivers and they stop at our partner pharmacy location. So a brick and mortar store, a well-established community location, and they pick up their orders, which would be, you know, either pizza or vaccines. And then they take them to people's houses and they, they do their appointments there. We use pharmacists to do our home appointments and each pharmacist operates like an independent contractor. So they are in charge of checking the state database ahead of time, having that consultation, that phone call with the patient and doing any follow-up after that. And VaxiTaxi just acts as the platform to connect all those pieces. Yeah, that's awesome. That's something that we definitely see a huge need for here now that we're obviously doing booster shots with COVID, but what was the demand like pre and after COVID started, the vaccine started hitting with this type of service? So when we started, it was more of a concierge service. We opened our own independent pharmacy and it was strictly mobile. So we worked with our board of pharmacy to get a, a special license and we were strictly mobile. That was really hard for a lot of insurance companies to accept. So we were mostly cash and we were doing um, families. So we would do three kids, a busy mom, busy dad. We'd show up, we'd do it in their driveway or in their living room. And it went really great, especially for like the really tech savvy population. Everything was paperless. Everything was done online, paid for online, consent forms. It was pretty slick. But then COVID happened and it quickly became apparent that there was this homebound population and population, multiple populations of people that weren't going to be able to get out and get a vaccine or were really going to struggle with the transportation that maybe because they haven't had vaccines in a few years. We said, oh, we can help with this. We've got the mobile equipment. We've got all of these pharmacists. Um, we can do this. It was it was challenging because it's a different breed of people with different resources and things like that. And so we weren't using our technology that we had built up and we were back to phones and paper. So we quickly overnight, I think our, our local news station put it on, said that we were doing it. And then we had, you know, the next morning, 600 and some appointments on wow. our voicemail. And we thought, oh boy, we are, we have to call all of these people back. So it was challenging, but you know, we did it and we, we did a good job too. I'm proud of our teams because we didn't pull people out of the front lines. We didn't pull like community pharmacists out of what they were doing because they were needed where they were at. We pulled pharmacists that did were doing other things. So like pharmacists in academia, one owns a yoga studio and, <laughs> you know, they do all, all different sorts of things, but they are still more than qualified and competent and to go out and give vaccines, they just needed somebody to organize them. 
Yeah, that's a huge issue when it comes to just the sheer volume of COVID is keeping it organized here, especially since basically everybody needs it and everyone's got questions about it too. So uh, when you saw some of the incentives come out with this, they probably weren't as high as what pharmacists had hoped given it, but were you happy to see that they did incentivize businesses during the pandemic to kind of start providing services like VaxiTaxi? Yeah, there's been lots of opportunity with like different grant opportunities and things like that. The interns, the payers, there's been a couple that have jumped on board with wanting to know how they can get our services, not just in central Iowa, but in other places. And there's been a few, but it's it's tough when the incentives for what Medicare proposed don't cover the cost. Not only that, but... I'm not sure in in your experience how many pharmacies out there are actually able to bill for that extra incentive fee because it's not as simple as just running a prescription through your dispensing system. Right. And I'd I'd be really curious to know how many people are actually doing it and how many people are, are found a way to make it efficient. But no, I think I feel like it's a step in the right direction because once we open the doors for we need pharmacists to provide vaccines at home. We need them to provide COVID vaccines at home. We also need to provide high-dose flu shots at home because the same patient that couldn't get a COVID vaccine isn't going to be able to run down the street and get a high-dose flu shot either. Yeah, and there's also so, other services we can provide too, like you know maybe there's a blood pressure check or there's a you know diabetes screen. There's a lot of other things we can do besides just doing a single vaccine as well too, right? Oh, absolutely. You know, when we go into homes um, and we, you know, we have 15 minutes with the patient minimum and there's a lot of good that you can do in 15 minutes. But I think where what we're learning is what we need to do and just taking note of how we can be helpful. And when when somebody has a, a counter stacked full of Advair inhalers and, and other inhalers, and they just keep sending them and they're not taking them or using them, that's the time where we need a pharmacist to step in. Yeah, and to your point too, you're in central Iowa. Looks very different than, I'm in Ohio, which probably is similar itself, but I'm in a part that's more urban of Ohio versus New York City, right? Like those payment models can change with each location because you actually have to go drive somewhere. If you're in New York City, you can go you know, sit in a block and watch half a million people walk by in a day. It's very different dynamic <laughs> for, for okay. what you're doing there. So there should be some different costs incurred with those areas as well. Oh, absolutely. You know, we, we tossed around the idea of uh, would we rather use mopeds or bird scooters? And, <laughs> and both are an option. We're really excited about both. We, we have some more like obstacle course training stuff to do before we can trust our pharmacists out there on those. <laughs> yeah, I, I would not be one you want to include on that. I would hit everything and crash it. So, yeah, I would lose all the vaccine and accidents. No, it's, it just comes down to uh, <laughs> Lyft and Uber. They, they figured it out in every market, right? DoorDash figures it out in every market. UPS, Amazon, like it's all logistics. And we've administered more COVID vaccines than any other vaccine. And it has the trickiest logistics, storage, handling, things like that. So I'm not sure, you know, we were up against a test right off the bat. Yeah. And I don't think there could be a tougher storage and handling procedure. And, you know, especially not when you're trying to drive in between houses in rural Iowa, we had to really um, have our times on, on monitor always. Yeah. 
and a plan. Yeah, you know, it's interesting too because I didn't think about this when we were talking leading up to this, but like you said, there is a minimum of 15 minutes with each person you're with. So, okay, 15 minutes, and I think the Medicaid or Medicare rate was 37.50 each. Please correct me if I'm wrong there. And so, if you're looking at Pfizer, you've got six doses of vial, and it's only good for yeah. six hours out of the fridge. Then you have drive time, wait time, mix time. Yep all these other times. So if it took 15 minutes from just the time you walked in and gave it to then 15 minutes to get the next person's house, which I'm assuming is pretty quick in where you're from because they're not going to be right next door to each other all the time, then that's 30 minutes a shot basically. And so if you're doing right. six shots, that means each vial is going to take you what? Three hours to go through. So, so, yeah. so you're pushing it there and at 37.50 each, that's, really tight and that's for a pharmacist pay and then you're not counting mileage or any of the other costs like the cooler or the th temperature ch uh, thermometer or anything like that i mean you've got there's digital data loggers that go with each bag there's epi pins that go with bags there's right. and we're not just talking about room temperature it was you know 100 degrees in june and july in iowa and humid so those you know, vaccines, they didn't have the full time on them. So we had to keep everything, you know, we really used our portable refrigerators and everything. It, it's expensive, but if you might as well not even do it if you're not going to do it right. You don't want to give somebody a, a vaccine that isn't effective. So yeah. it, it wasn't six hours. It was a lot less than that. But that's where like the creative scheduling of having a lot of pharmacists doing it was beneficial because we could split a vial and, and on top of that, they're only supposed to travel so many miles. But, you know, you're not supposed to drive them 45 miles across the county. <laughs> yeah, it's not ideal when you have a you know a strict temperature. You have to keep it in and it's a car right. and it's the middle of summer or whatever situation, middle of winter even. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a, that's a good call. I did not know it could only travel so many miles. Yeah, it's only supposed to travel so many miles. So there's all of these things that were, were so hard and so tricky. And so I feel like it was a really, really good test of our systems and how our people were going to do given these these conditions, right? I'm not sure that there's ever been a more strict vaccine storage and handling operation. Yeah, and especially one of the scale too. is <laughs> just right. mind-bending right. of how many millions of doses there are, hundreds of millions of doses. So... I don't want you to tip your hand here too much or anything like that, but given how the pandemic has changed what services and availability that Americans expect, do you see this as a path to really grow Vaxitaxi beyond vaccines? Or is this because people are really starting to expect that Amazon Prime level service, for lack of a better word? You know, my, my goal, my vision is to provide a lot of jobs. Like it's a, it's a great job. It is a phenomenal job. We have every pharmacist that comes back at the end of the day tells us what a great job they had, what a great day they had. Some are a little harder than others, but they, they really do love their jobs. And my job is to keep them busy. And what does that mean? Well, now, you know, we've added testing to our services and and these are easy things to add to vaccine taxi because they're things that i really believe in and they're really helpful um you know when somebody thinks they have covid the last thing we want them to do is to hop on a bus and <laughs> yeah. go down to the pharmacy and check if you could bring that to them with a simple phone call you're doing a lot of good for a lot of people 
and monoclonal antibody treatments at home. Not a lot of pharmacies are set up to provide monoclonal antibodies in-house. There's just not enough space, especially if you're doing a lot of vaccines. This is something we can do at home. Yeah, that's that's interesting too, because I know I've worked at that trying to figure out the logistics of doing monoclonal antibodies at where I work. And, you know, it, it's really tough when you start looking at this because you're all, you only like really budget yourself for so much space or you plan to use most of your space, right? Cause you got to maximize what you're doing. Yeah. Then all of a sudden you, you get a curveball like this thrown in like the last hour, I guess of COVID and you're kind of like, there's a need, there's a business part to it, but how do I make this work? And then all of a sudden it becomes a huge logistical issue of like space and moving in and out of that space and everything else. So that's a, that's a good call out that I didn't really think of looking at that. Do you think that there is a demand for like actual in-person service as opposed to doing things virtually that people are now, especially when it's COVID's over, they're gonna be like, look, I really want to see someone. I don't want to be stuck doing some of these things virtually. You know, we think of like MTMs that are done like over the phone that maybe people want to start doing that in person. And there's a bigger benefit to that because you can actually see stuff in their home and kind of see a little bit more about them and learn a little bit more about them and make a little better decision. I think it comes down to prior to COVID, the idea of having a pharmacist in your house was a little uncomfortable for most people. Um, pe- not people that were familiar with home health care, but like the rest of the population, right? We're just not familiar with doctor calls, home calls. COVID obviously changed everybody's mindset pretty quickly as to what the standard is or what the expectation is. And it, it, it got weird, right? We were, we were doing shots in, in driveways and that would have been really weird probably three years ago, but right now it's totally acceptable. And going forward, people realize it's, it's actually a great idea. But the thing that kept that continues to get callbacks is they actually know our pharmacist. And, you know, when I'm thinking of Iowa, I think, you know, there are 3,500 pharmacists, there's 3 million people. You know a lot of your, you know your people in your neighborhood, in your surrounding. And when they know you, that opens the door for other opportunities. So I don't, I'm not sure. I don't know where I see MTM services going. I think it comes down to if people would be comfortable with someone coming into their house without, like we we get, you know, invited because we have something that they're looking for. Um, I'm not sure the other way around, but I will say we've had a couple of people who do telehealth visits with like the ER. They cut their hand open and they need a tetanus shot. They don't need to go to the ER because it doesn't need stitches, but they do need a tetanus shot. And so that's when they call us. And I just think like how much money does that save the healthcare system? Oh, totally. And, you know, one thing you mentioned with that, too, is we can save money with a lot of these services because they're preventative, really. So we're avoiding those kind of worst case scenarios or pandemic outbreaks in the case of COVID. But one thing we said you said leading up to this was don't volunteer your time, because a lot of times what we're doing with this is pharmacists are going above and beyond. And we're probably one of the worst professions for it. I don't see the other ones doing it quite as much. I don't know if we just don't understand our worth or what it is, but you know, this really weakens like kind of some of the payment structures. So we end up just doing this stuff for free. And then we kind of wonder why we're not getting paid for it. Well, it's because we kept doing it for free for so long. Is that kind of what this also pairs with? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, why was a network of mobile pharmacists not already in place? I mean, we've been doing flu shots and other vaccines in the pharmacies for years, right? Why, why was this network? Why did it not exist? It didn't exist because 
they didn't have to because no one was paying for it. So therefore nobody wanted to do it. And then when we really needed these people, they weren't available. And so I try not to sound greedy, but I'm advocating for the patients when I say, if you volunteer your time now to provide these services when patients really, really need them, it essentially just cuts off their services as soon as you're done volunteering because there's nobody there to pick up those services for them in the future. And, and it's really unfortunate. It, it doesn't solve our problem. It's, it's a band-aid. Yeah, you wouldn't expect somebody to go to McDonald's and the person who's working at the McDonald's counter to start cooking their burger for free behind the counter like hours later because they're like, well, I showed up at 1 a.m. and want a burger, so I expect you to be here. You know, it's like, it's it's kind of the same thing, right? You're still providing a service for somebody, although McDonald's right. probably shouldn't be the best comparison for us. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's okay. We get it. You know, nobody's going to, you know, as soon as, you know, the volunteers are gone, and, and we do need volunteers, and, and you know, I don't want to knock the, the people, the incredible people right. that have just, you know, devoted so much time and energy, but I think what we have to learn as a healthcare system is we can't rely on volunteers like that, and, you know, I think it's sad to say, but I, I believe it, um, this isn't going to be the last pandemic that my children see. When when the next thing hits, like, what did we learn from this one? And it can't be that these services aren't available. It would be wonderful in the next two years to have 300 pharmacists in Iowa, just in Iowa, doing this. And, and I believe it, and we will. And, you know, I'm excited for it because when something comes out and somebody needs help, your pharmacist is accessible, or they always used to be anyways. And now, unfortunately, the phone rings a lot and there's really, really long lines. And as soon as we are not, you know, the most accessible healthcare provider, we've, we've kind of just thrown in the towel because that's what people want from their pharmacists. They want you to be available and helpful and knowledgeable. Yeah, and it's funny too because we've even seen where major chains have kind of found a way to measure your accessibility by monitoring your phone wait times or things like that. So, you know, when when you force it like that, it's kind of like, well, wait a minute, where's the standard at for this? So, I think that's interesting. And I, I, we are the most accessible healthcare professional, but it seems like with the time of COVID that we've been less accessible, and we've seen major pushback, resentment, and you know, patient outbursts because of that, because of the sheer volume we have to deal with just because right. of the pandemic. So I think that's interesting that once you take away the accessibility, now people start realizing it and then they start getting mad. But instead of being mad at us, they should be mad at the payment models that made it that way. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. Yeah, that's, that's exactly what I'm saying. I also think when when you can't get to your pharmacist and you can't talk with a pharmacist and you don't have a relationship with them, you go to the next easiest thing. And that is your family, your, your I don't know, your Facebook group, your something. And, and that's not a good source of information for people. And I think no. that is why misinformation spreads like wildfire because especially on like social media sites, right? If, if you can't go get advice from your pharmacist quickly and easily, you're going to ask your child's babysitter's sister who once was a nurse, right? And, and that, that's really unfortunate because you don't know their credentials. You don't know their training. Like you, you just need a place to go for your information. And I remember when I used to work, um, 
um, at CVS and we would have people that would come in and they'd bring us problems that sometimes had nothing to do with medicine, <laughs> but, but they just had problems. Right. And, and like, that's what we did. We fixed them and, and we fixed their problems. So, but that's what I mean. People just need a reliable source and they need you available. And I don't think we can do that for patients when, when we have to close the pharmacy because there's nobody there to staff it. Yeah, no, I totally understand that. And that makes very black and white sense. Um, obviously, you faced some barriers with starting this up. You've kind of alluded to these with like the mobile pharmacy, the special license. Like legally speaking, considering that like many people like associate getting a vaccine at a pharmacy or medical office, like what other barriers did you face from either like a legal or like a, a standpoint of the whole logistics of it that was just unforeseen coming into it? Sure. Right off the bat, when we when we first started and we were targeting like certain groups, certain neighborhoods, that was that was pretty easy because that was a lot of word of mouth and we made it really fun. Like we gave the kids a really great experience and, you know, that traveled to a number of doctors offices in the area that really appreciated us doing some of the heavy lifting for some of those like really complicated cases, they appreciated that. So, so that was pretty easy. The patients were comfortable with it. The hardest part was the statewide protocol allowed our pharmacists to have vaccine. However, the wholesalers, so like you know, McKesson, Cardinal, all of them, we applied for all of them. We had, I think, 11 applications and accounts. Nobody wanted to sell it to us hmm. because we didn't have a traditional storefront. And so that was that was really difficult. So we went back to our board of pharmacy and we're like, we want to help. You have this great piece of legislation that lets us do it and we want to do it. But here's the deal. We can't get vaccine. And they worked with us and we then licensed our pharmacy as a mobile pharmacy with a real license. And we went through all the inspections and and that opened up the door so that we could start our own ordering. But the next problem was working with the insurance payers. And I think I touched on this earlier, but I'm not, I wasn't familiar with credentialing and things like that from the beginning. And it actually cost us a lot of money and time to hire a third party to help get us in network with the different insurance companies. And that was just, it was denial after denial after denial for, for lots of crazy reasons. Like we didn't have a DEA number which we don't need a DEA number. We're not doing <laughs> controlled substances, right? Or it's just, just lots of crazy things of all the reasons why we couldn't be in network. Um, and it got to the point of finally they just said, no, closed panel. You can't, we we have enough pharmacists doing this in your area that we don't need taxi taxi. And I got a kick out of that because, I mean, nobody was doing that in our area at all. Yeah. In the whole state. And we were getting all of the appointments from the hospitals, all the appointments from the community pharmacies that couldn't go out to their patients. And we were getting all of them. And we were being told by the insurance companies that, no, there were too many people doing this already. We couldn't be in it. And so this that was a whole new world to me. The medical credentialing, uh, pharmacy and network, that was definitely spent a lot of time and money on that. So definitely, definitely one of the biggest hurdles. It's it's pretty interesting because you hear you had a need. Clearly, the patients wanted it. Obviously, the professional wanted to do it. The state then went out of their way to go and allow it. 
but it, the insurance company is who actually is running the healthcare decision making in this whole process because they're they no one would pay for it essentially. That's yeah. pretty frustrating. But I think every pharmacist who understands the payment models just shakes their head and goes, "Yep, that's how it works." So I think that's pretty frustrating. But I can definitely see that being a huge barrier as well. All right, but I can't let you go from this podcast without the two questions I ask everybody. So if you could change one thing in pharmacy that is not a law, what would you change? Sure. I wish that there was more competition in community pharmacy. I wish that we weren't so focused on just a few key players. And what I what I mean by that is, you know, last spring I saw a quote from the CEO of CBS saying that 85% of the population lives within 10 miles of one of their stores. And and they were promoting that as a good thing. And I read that and thought, that is a bad thing. That is, that is never has 85% of the population using one service been a good thing ever. And that's really unfortunate. So I wish that there was more competition. It was easier to start and open a pharmacy. It shouldn't take a half million dollars and 18 months or 24 months to, to open a pharmacy. And that is what I wish would come back. Yeah, you know, good question. And, and to that point, so if 85% of the population lived within five miles of one of their stores, 15% of the population still leaves you with roughly 40 to 50 million people that aren't in that range. Never mind if they don't even have access to cars or transportation. So that's a good call, especially kind of like with the services you provide that are in home. And, you know, just because 85% of the population lives within that circle, that doesn't mean they can get there. Right. Like they, they still can't leave their homes. They still can't, you know, so it's not that they truly are providing that for care for 85% of the population. That's just a stat, you know? Yeah. It's, it's a metric, but what does it actually mean <laughs> quality right. wise? I mean, it's, it's too big. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Second question here. Uh, if you could change, add, remove one law in pharmacy, what would it be and why? Oh, so this one's really personal, Eric, because this has been um, such a struggle for Vaxi Taxi. And that is that we have so much trouble getting in network with payers. And what I wish, and I didn't even know this was possible, you know, we apply, we go through the appeals, we keep going, and then um, they just say, no, uh, closed panel. So we are not letting you in our network despite the fact that you meet all the criteria and despite the fact that you're providing a service that no one else is providing, our answer is no, closed panel. You can ask us again in a year. That was just wild to me that, again, like we're doing a service that nobody else is doing. We are reaching all of these patients. And how can how can you say that we don't belong in network? I wish that was not allowed. I wish that if any provider providing preventative care services that meets the payer's requirements for what is considered good care would have to be allowed in network because I just don't see the benefit of preventing preventative care. And that's all that this does. And I just, I don't understand it. I wish that there was a law that said that couldn't happen. Yeah, and it's called preventative care for a reason. It helps prevent major hospitalizations or other health issues. I mean, look at the vaccine with COVID. The data is pretty obvious out there. And, you know, the old adage, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. 
definitely holds up many times over when it comes to something like vaccines or in most cases just general preventative care especially given the cost of an ER bill now starts out at about seven and a half to ten thousand dollars that's exponentially right. more than what cost to pay someone to go give someone a vaccine in home even if you paid them 400 percent markup or whatever you want to throw out there right which yeah we're not but yes <laughs> <laughs> yeah you're, you're not gouging people but this is a case where you could gouge somebody and you're still technically getting a, a deal on it which is kind of crazy to, to think about right right nope yeah that would be it would be wonderful if, <laughs> if closed panels were not allowed yeah well hey thanks for joining the podcast casey i appreciate it where can people find you at if they want to reach out to you or vaxi taxi yeah, you bet. So our website is the best place, which is vaxitaxi.com, and it's V-A-X-I-T-A-X-I.com. And um, on LinkedIn, please reach out on LinkedIn. Yeah, d- definitely more people reach out. If you want to partner with VaxiTaxi or reach out to Casey to expanding services like this, she has a wealth of knowledge, obviously, as she kind of highlighted on this episode. So please reach out. Please connect to her. This is Even if you don't want to necessarily start it up yourself, she can help kind of get the ball rolling with their services and maybe in your area. So thanks again for joining the podcast, Casey. And as always, thanks for listening to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, your prescription for pharmacy and politics. 